The following is a production of Entertainment Rating Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Shackles, Burlap, and Lies. I'm your host, Ethan Gilson, and this is episode six. Today, I am joined by Siobhan Gee, who is a, uh, a rigger, an uh, educator, and an all-around great person. And so, hey, Siobhan, how are you doing? Hey, Ethan. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing very well. So, the first question right out of the gate, who are you? I am Siobhan. I like long walks on the beach in California, which is my home. I like taking the dog for a W-A-L-K. He's right next to me, so I can't actually say it. And uh, currently, I'm a project manager with United Staging and Rigging. Awesome. Um, a little shout out to our, our friends at USR. Um, how did you get into the business to, to steal a, a term from some of my colleagues at the ESA? What's your origin story? And before you get to that, I, I'll also ask, how long have you been in the industry? I've been in the industry for about eight years now. Excellent. And so eight years ago, how did that journey start for you? I am going to tell you the not so abridged version of my story because I've been wrestling with my origin story for years and um, I just want to be honest about it. So eight years ago, I was a 17 year old in high school and I just wanted a job. So I went to a friend and said, hey, I will clean your toilets. I will help you around the office. I'll, I'll learn whatever I need to learn. I just would really like a job. And she said, oh great, we could use you for the Maroon 5 load-in. And as a 17 year old high schooler, I was like, are we talking like a cover band? Or are we talking like the Maroon 5? Or is this a code word for something? And no, sure enough, it was, it was for a rehearsal for the Maroon 5 prior to one of their tours. And I thought that was the coolest thing. I, I didn't know that she was a scheduler for a production labor company. To me, she was just my, she was my karate instructor's sister-in-law. And you know, we were all friends. So then that's how I started my stagehand career. After about a year of stagehand work, I, I really noticed people walking around on the beams. That's when I started really paying attention to the ropes that were dropping down. Because prior to that, I just, I hadn't even thought about it. You know, how the chain got up in the air. So I, I looked, I noticed people up there and I thought that looks dangerous and challenging. And that's what I want to do. I want to try that. So I asked one of the head riggers what it took to be up there. And he said, well, you have to know how to build a basket. And I go, okay, well, how do you do that? Can you teach me? He goes, I mean, I don't really have time. You also have to know how to tie a bowline. And I'm like, okay, well, what's that? Can you show me that? And basically he just kept blowing me off and that's fine. He didn't want to teach me, but I still wanted to learn. 
eventually I met another rigger who um, agreed to take me under his wing. And he sent me PDF files of some documents that he was working on, just some you know, ground rigger facts. He said, here, read these. Can you come over tomorrow and we'll, we'll do lessons? I go, yes, absolutely. So it all happened kind of quickly. I go over the next day. He says, we're going to learn how to tie a bowline. Okay, is it this? He's like, well, I thought that was going to take four hours. Um, clove hitch? This? Yeah. Uh, timber hitch. I don't know what that is. It's a clove hitch on the bottom of a pipe and a half hitch on top. He hands me a Sketch 40 pipe and I tie a timber hitch. And he goes, well, that, there we go. I thought that was going to take four hours. I guess we're moving on. So he starts teaching me throughout the day. And in the afternoon, he's like, well, you have your first ground rigging job this Friday. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so excited. This is so cool. And he goes, I told them that we've been training for two weeks. I go, but it's been like two hours. He said, yeah, I know. You've got a lot of shit to learn by Friday. <laughs> so then that was my first ground rigging gig. And after a year of learning how to ground rig and really trying to perfect my, I guess there's no such thing as perfection, but really working on my craft, I was then wanting to go into uprigging. And so I bought a harness and fall pro and rope. Um, the parts of my story that I'm ashamed of happen in between going from ground rigging to uprigging. So when this mentorship first started, he never really had anything nice to say to me. He would always point out my mistakes and never pointed out the things that I had done well on right. a job site. And um, one day he gave me like his first compliment, like months and months into training with him. I finally heard something nice and you know, it was very, it was very, actually like something very touching. So, you know, then we became friends. Um, and you know, a while later we then became friends with benefits and as a 19 year old at the time, I thought I must be so mature and so smart to be able to attract a 36 year old. I'm not necessarily against age gaps, but I think that if you are between, you know, the ages of like 17 and 22, it's slightly inappropriate because you're still learning who you are as a person. You're still figuring out what your passions are and who your friends are. And I don't, I, I think your prefrontal cortex doesn't completely mature until you're 25. So I'm not, I'm an official adult now. So yeah, basically I was, you know, I was 19 years old and I was making a lot of really dumb decisions. And something else that I learned was in our activities together, um, he would say things like, I think you're the one, you're like the one for me to settle down with. And I'm like, no, I just, I don't agree with you. We're just friends with benefits, nothing more. So I, uh, the hard way I learned that if you and your quote unquote partner are not, are not on the same page, you shouldn't be in that partnership. And, you know, the smart decision is a lot of times the hard decision. So, you know, that 
situation I handled very poorly. When I was interested in another person, someone who I wanted to be serious with, and to me being serious means getting, you know, with the possibility of getting married and having children, you know, I ended this friends with benefits um, relationship and things just kind of spiraled out of control. Um, I was being controlled and manipulated. I was kind of being groomed to believe that my mentor was the only person who knew what was going on and that any other person around us didn't know anything about rigging and those people are not to be trusted. So, you know, imagine being on your rigging crew of like nine or 13 people or however many you're working with for that day and not being able to trust any of them. Like when you're an uprigger, you want to be able to trust your crew because if you fall, if something happens to you, you want to, you, you want to trust your crew and, and believe that they're going to rescue you and that they're going to help right. you if something bad happens. And I, you know, I was in the mindset that nobody was going to help me if I needed help. You know, he would say things like, who are people going to side with you, a little riglet that doesn't know what she's doing or me, the person they've been working with for 15 plus years. And, you know, it was a lot of manipulation and control. Um, one time he threatened to blackmail me with pictures that I did not you know, consent to him having on his phone. And he was swiping through these explicit photos saying, I'm going to show this, these to this employer, that employer, this person, that person, you're never going to rig again. Um, I was 20 when that happened. And that was, <laughs> it was terrifying. I'm, you know, I, I'm shaking, kind of, you know, telling this story and reliving it. It was one of the scariest things ever. And, um, Basically, he was threatening me, um, threatening to blackmail me, and he was threatening, you know, he's using sexual exploitation. Um, I didn't realize that I should have, you know, called the police. I should have filed a claim. There, there's just so many things I could have done differently, but I didn't. What happened was I ended up being depressed. I, would, I was in college at the time, and I skipped a lot of classes, and I also stopped taking rigging calls for a long time because I was legitimately afraid of what would happen to me on a job site. I basically thought people would just point at me and laugh at me. And it wasn't until a fellow female rigger reached out to me and told me that, you know, people did respect me. People did have respect for me as a rigger, even though I was fairly young, you know, very young and very new. And her, I, I tell her how grateful I am for her pretty often because it really was a pivotal point in my life. Um, I was close to just giving up. So I really, I hope that my story resonates with someone. Um, and I hope that people who are wanting to get into the industry, guys and gals, I hope they realize that there are plenty of resources out there. There are plenty of webinars, classes, instructors, and mentors, and people willing to help you get into the industry without manipulation and sexual harassment. So I think that's, I, my, uh, that's my story. That's how I started. Um, I, I, going, I, into my, going into like my upbringing years, that's, 
I, I started distancing myself from that person. So, you know, he helped me get into the industry, but my own skill set helped me stay in the industry and, and continue to get more work. So that's and my I story. I think that is a important takeaway is that um, your skill, your ability is what other people recognized and would ultimately judge you on. And that um, hard work and dedication will get you a lot of places. Um, you know, it, 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 it is unfortunate your specific situation as well as um, I know several other people who have gone through the same thing that uh, and it's not unusual. We, we work in a, a, I often say a high value in terms of there's a lot of money. It is uh, usually, especially on the concert side of things, high profile because you're dealing with celebrities, but it is a small industry. Um, there's, you know, not a lot of people in the industry and we spend a lot of time with a small group of people, especially if you're on tour. We talked about this in, in previous podcasts of, um, you know, being in proximity to people for a long period of time, you form relationships. I mean, that you can't take human nature out of, of the people. Um, but it, 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 it is unfortunate that uh, someone took advantage of the situation and, um, and used it for personal gain. And, you know, I'm glad to see Even that you've, you've been able to persist in pursuing what you want to do. That takes a lot of hard work. So you, you deserve credit for that. Um, you were going to say something. It, it, I was going to say it doesn't, it, it really wouldn't have mattered who helped me get my foot in the door of the industry because you know, there was another person, like I said, who was blowing me off. I would ask questions and he didn't want to teach me, which is fine. So I was still very determined to have this experience. I was very determined to find out for myself what it was like to be a rigger, what it was like to walk on those beams. And it, it doesn't, it didn't, it wouldn't have mattered who helped me, but unfortunately that's just the way the story unfolded. Right. So and, um, you know, even after all of that stuff happened, even after this person and I stopped talking to each other, he continued to slander my name. And I would be on job sites. People would come up to me and say, hey, you're actually a really nice person. Hey, you actually know what you're doing. Hey, you're actually pretty cool. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, you, yeah, I, I am. I, I like being a nice person. <laughs> like, I... Think yeah. <laughs> I think one of the best compliments I ever received from an individual was uh, after the first time we had met in person. We knew of each other. This is an, it was another person in the industry, well known. Um, we had a lot of mutual friends. I didn't, you know, didn't have any real opinion about this other person, and the same for me. However. We, we ended up spending a few days together, working together. And at one point they came up to me and said, hey, I need to apologize to you. And, and I was confused at first. And they're like, you know, I, I had a preconceived notion of you and it, it was wrong. And I apologize for that. And 
I was startled for two reasons. One, no idea that they had a preconceived notion. They, you know, it's not like the second we met, they were like, oh, it's Ethan, which by the way, is a very normal response. Um, oh my God. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, it, and two, I got to give them credit for saying, hey, you know, I, I rushed to judgment. And I think we all do it, but I'll draw, I'll draw this parallel and, and at some point I'm sure people will get sick of hearing it. But um, again, I refer to the industry I spent quite a few years in with pro wrestling, which is you would see talent uh, who got stuck into the process that the only way they could make themselves more popular with the fans or with the decision makers was to put other people down. And mm -hmm they don't recognize that what that's actually doing is showing that you don't have the ability, the drive to, to do it on your own, that you have to step on other people to do it. Um, you, everyone's going to run into people like that in our industry. It's how you respond to them and not get deterred by them um, to, to keep going forward. We have this bad habit in our industry of not liking the new person. We, we all get threatened. Oh, the new person. And, and <laughs> whether, yeah. And whether it's the, Oh, they're going to take my position or whatever. It's like, you know what? Hey, another person on the team. Here's how I look at it. I'm lazy. That's why I'm a rigger. I'm not, I'm not a rigger because I love heights. I do love the math, but it's because I'm lazy. Why should I pick something up? I got a chain hoist to do that, right? Well, if I have another person on the crew, that's, that's less work I have to do. Yeah, great. Mm -hmm. Welcome to the team. But it's you know what, if you also help someone with their skills and they end up taking a leadership position before you do, or they move on to get a job that you may have liked to have, if you've done that person well, they're going to remember you and they're going to be grateful for the things that you taught them. And, you know, if they keep you in mind, they may call you when they have an opportunity to hire someone on a crew. Absolutely. It's, you're going to see the same people on the way up the ladder as you're going to see on the way down and, and they can help in both directions. So it, it's, you know, it's a lot easier to be nice to people than it is just to be, you know, angry people. So as I was saying, your dedication, your drive to learn and to excel in the industry quickly is clearly a very strong part of your personality to say. I don't know if I'm phrasing that correctly, but how, how do you think, or do you think there are people who are resistant to that drive, again, being threatened by it, and how do you overcome that resistance? I have experienced that where um, people have felt threatened by my determination and drive to continue to excel. Um, in that particular situation, I honestly, the work environment was so toxic for me that I moved on to work somewhere else and surround myself with people who were not threatened by me and who were willing to help me and who would accept my tips as well. 
Um, I, I enjoy helping people on the fall protection side of rigging. I've done a lot of research on that and I've been pretty involved with that. So if I see my cohorts doing something that um, could cause injury, I, I politely try to you know, let them know why what they're doing could cause an injury and how to correct it because I would like for my friends to be able to go home healthy every day. Um, yeah, so I guess I answer really is just to surround you with good people. Right. Um, I think one of the, the things you mentioned that's uh, tricky, especially when you're new within an industry is how to properly approach someone who's not doing something as well as they could be and to phrase the suggestion in a manner that does not get them to be instantly dismissive. I find a, you know, we, we all recognize if you walk up to somebody, especially if you don't have a, a established relationship and say, you're doing it wrong. You're not going to get anywhere <laughs> yeah. versus, Hey, oh no, you know, you should consider this and here's why, or, to figure out how to... Or uh, can I... Right, exactly. Raise it as a question. Can, is it okay if I help you? Can it, I point something out to you? And if they say no, if it's not going to kill them, then move on. But if it is going to kill them, say, okay, well, I'm still going to tell you this. And be part of the solution. When we write ANSI standards and they go out to public review, um, and when this podcast uh, airs, uh, currently... Uh, BSRE 1.39-2000 question mark, which is the revision of ANSI E 1.39, which is the follow rest standard within the entertainment industry. Um, that's up for public review. And so you can go to tsp.esta.org. You can download the draft document. You can read it. And then there's a form you can fill out if you have comments like, hey, I think instead of saying you should do this, you should, you, itch. I'm trying not to use should all the time. <laughs> Change the word to it shall. It shall. And in standard writings, should is a suggestion. Shall is a must be followed thing. Um, but when you make your comments, you have to offer a solution. I don't like this and offering nothing to fix it. We don't have to respond to that. Um, it, it's not just the critique, it's the proposed solution that's the part of that, is part of that. And I think that's important when you're dealing with people is don't just say you're doing it wrong. Say, hey, I think there's a better way to do that. There's a more efficient way to do that. Or, hey, we really, if you're in a position of authority, hey, we need to change that to this and here is why. Um, you know, I, I firmly believe it's it's a lot easier to get something by being respectful than browbeating. Um, Absolutely. I used to joke for years that when I ran crews that um, at some point I'm going to screw up and I'm going to need something to redo something for me because I screwed up. And it's a lot easier if they don't hate me to get them to do that. Yeah. Um, 
on the flip side, I realize not everyone's going to get along all the time. So mm -hmm. how you deal with those relationships and those personalities is certainly uh, a challenge. Um, There's a lot more finesse to navigating interpersonal relationships. And it's not enough to just be abrasive all the time. It's not enough to just say you're wrong or I see something horribly wrong with this picture as we see in a lot of social media um, rigging pages. But you, there's just a lot more finesse. You have to think about what is your goal? Is your goal to just shout into an, a room and say, I'm right and you're wrong? Or is your goal to teach someone something? Is your goal to facilitate a safe work culture? And if that's your goal, then being an asshole is just not the way to approach these problems. So, right. you know, and that's that whole thing about having finesse is definitely not something that I had when I was younger. Um, people who were involved, who were instructors in the Sprat class that I took thought I was very cocky and very abrasive and they are very right. And it took, it took um, some failing on my behalf and it took some, you know, I guess burn, bridge burning, unintentional bur uh, bridge burning because people just didn't want to work with me because I was just, I was annoying. I was an annoying know-it-all. So it, it took me several years to understand, you know, you can't just be abrasive. You can't just be cocky and all these negative things. You need to be humble and work on yourself. <clears throat> and that includes working on the language that you use when you're trying to communicate something to someone Absolutely. I, I still learn new ways of communicating. Um, I, I learned through my involvement with the ESA when we were developing the safety summit a few years ago, the, the content, um, a, a exercise where uh, a person throws out a, a cockamamie idea and instead of saying no or pointing out the deficiencies, it was yes and everything you had to say was yes and so it the idea was to force you to think about things a little differently someone poses a bad idea hey let's hang this line array using tie line <laughs> and so instead of the response being like no we can't do that it is going to fall was yes and then we can demonstrate why doing that with tie line is a bad idea because the tie line doesn't have the working strength. That's a great idea. So it's just a shift sure. in the thought process. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm not saying you then have to go out in, in every situation in life go yes. And, but it's supposed to, I would be so careful with that. <laughs> oh yeah. I'd be so careful with that. Cause that can easily sound like sarcasm. Yes. And I love sarcasm. <laughs> um, Absolutely. But it, the point being is it's an exercise to kind of help you progress and change thought and to be able to use that in the correct application. Um, no single tool is the right tool for everything, unless you're an electrician, in which case your pliers are the tool for everything. Um, <laughs> but it certainly is something to... Um, to always analyze and to progress with, which leads me to the question of who have some of the mentors in the industry been to you? Who have you've learned some of the lessons from in terms of 
how to communicate, how to run a crew, how to, to do these, you know, these things and, and to continue to progress? First and foremost, I have to give a shout out to my karate instructor, Jason Stanley. I started in his dojo when I was 10 years old and I started um, assisting when I was 11. And I would assist the little ninja classes. And as I got older, I would assist with the young samurai classes. And then, then I would assist with the adult classes. So everything that I learned in karate has, has carried me through my professional career. It was there that I learned how to stand, how to make people feel included, how to engage students. And it was great because I would teach, you know, little ninjas who are four years to eight years of age. Young samurai are nine to um, 14 years of age. And the adults are uh, 16 and up. Sorry if you hear the dog in the background. <laughs> so, you know, and I can teach you how to do a front kick, but I'm going to teach it differently to you if you're a four-year-old, 14-year-old, or 44-year-old. And these are things that I carried with me um, while I was a fall protection trainer. It's the, these principles I carry with me when I'm having a company meeting with my team. So that's, that's the first person I think of when you ask me about a mentor. Um, in the industry, Tony Galuppi. He, he, oh my gosh, if you know Tony, he is an incredible rigger. And what I really admire about him is his ability to stay calm. I think if people are listening to this who worked with him on Ka, they may say, oh my God, Tony was not calm. He was, I don't even know. <laughs> Apparently he was different when he was younger. It seems to be a common theme with people. But when I was working with him on Chris Angel's Mind Freak, he was always very quiet and very calm. And when he had something to say, you listened. And people on our team were always very eager to meet his expectations. And there's, there's just something about Tony, his, his, the, his stoicism and his professionalism. And he was also just a funny guy. He was just a person that you wanted to impress and a person that you wanted to hang out with. Sorry, that was that was a, a long-winded answer. No, no, no. no, no, no. I learned a lot from Tony in the you know couple of times that I've gotten to work with him. Yes, because I've never given a long-winded answer in my life. <laughs> um, no, I, I, it's great to hear uh, about a mentor that inspires you, and I think that's that's a, a a great thing in terms of he inspired you to work harder for him. I think that, that, that goes along with what we've been saying before in terms of leadership style. Um, so you mentioned, you know, working, doing some, uh, some interesting projects. Here's a new question I just thought of. Um, Woo. What are, what have some of your favorite projects to work on been? And, and I ask that very open-endedly because I realize that, and this is something everyone in the industry should recognize, you will have clients at times that don't want you talking about their project. And that could be from an event side, from an installation side. It, you know, that's certainly something to be respectful of. So within reason, what have some of your favorite projects to work on been? 
My favorite project has been Mind Freak with Tony. I come from the arena rigging side, so, and everything in arena rigging is temporary. With this install in Planet Hollywood, it was permanent and it was in a theater. So I was already out of my comfort zone. And every single day, I just, <laughs> I felt inadequate every single day. I made so many mistakes. Um, shout out to Luis Valenzuela, who we lovingly call Luquete, for always being honest with me and always pointing out my mistakes. Sometimes he would walk up to something and be like, what is this? Who did this? This is pathetic, man. You call yourself a rigger? And I'd be like, uh, I did it. I'm sorry. I told the guys to do it. This is why. Now I know why that was a bad idea. And I, it was a challenge to, you know, me, five foot four, looking up at Luis, who I don't even know how tall he is, like six foot, I don't know what, and go, it was me. I made a mistake. I'm sorry. You know, it was every single day was humbling. Every single day I learned something new. And my experiences on that job helped me study for the ETCP exam. If there was a concept that I did, I wasn't quite grasping before, after that job, it was so much easier because I'd say, oh, I get it. That reminds me of this thing that happened on that day. And, you know, it was just, it was just a really cool project. I got to be in Vegas for like four months. I got to hang out with my friends and it was a good time. That's awesome. Um, so you mentioned you, you, you used this experience to help you prepare for the ETCP exam. Did you do arena, theater, both? I have my arena rigging certification. Excellent. Um, have you renewed that yet? I got it last year, so I haven't had to haven't renew renewed? it just yet. So here's, here's, here's a question I've asked people, which is, um, have you done anything um, recently, even though it's been a year, you can start right away. Um, what have you done to earn renewal credits? Have you done anything interesting or that you really liked uh, that you want to share? Yes. I have been taking webinars with Chicago Fly House and with Eric Rouse and, and with um, CM and Harp Rigging. I think I named all of the ones that I've participated in. So they're fantastic. It's, it's so great to, you know, reinforce things you already know and to dive into the more complex concepts that you may be struggling with. Absolutely. And, and you're always learning. One is always learning. I should say proper English. Um, you know, we evolve. I think that's maybe the, 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 a common thread in our discussion so far is you never stop evolving. Um, you, you continually learn new things. Um, and then you can apply them uh, in the future, which I, you know, as again, as a person who likes to learn things, I think is, is the fun. That's what's stimulating from a mental aspect is learn this new uh, skill, figure out how to apply it, do it, have success with it and be like, awesome, great. And then move on to the next thing you can learn. That being said, I, I personally, I have to remind myself to, not be everything to everyone 
and to focus on certain things. Don't be good at everything. Be great at, at a few things. Um, and, you know, it's not saying you can't learn other aspects, but um, really focus on a couple of things and be excellent at them. And I think that will serve you well in the long run. Um, so on the flip side of what was the, the, you know, most enjoyable project we worked on, do you have any horror stories? Is there, and, and again, like I've said it, uh, previously, um, what I'm looking for is not, uh, we did this thing and -and so-and-so died. What I'm looking for is, oh, we had this challenge or this wasn't done correctly previously. And so we had to fix it or, you know, Horror stories are a significant, you know, rigging challenge besides dealing with other people. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I haven't had any really horrible days, luckily. Um, oh, I feel like I'm going to get in trouble for telling this story. But one time, someone, we were all, we, we were in a roof pretty high up I'm making a point and I hear <laughs> like I'm like no no I turn around and go you okay buddy he's like yeah <laughs> I'm like no I finish making my point because now I'm really concerned I'm putting on my American Red Cross hat and I look at this guy and I just it happened he threw up on the beans. I'm, I'm like, oh my god! So I, I get onto the, I get off the beam, get onto the catwalk. I look at him. I go, hey buddy, are you dizzy? Are you thirsty? Can you see me? You know, I'm just like asking these questions. Are yeah. you okay? Yeah. He looks up at me, just covered in, <laughs> covered. I'm sorry, he's covered in his own vomit, and he looks at me. And he goes, man those barbecue ribs were a bad idea. And I'm like, it's 9 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> barbecue ribs, that's gross. <laughs> and so some, so some, someone, our, our other friend was um, holding the point, but he couldn't finish making it because he was in an awkward position. So I challenged myself to go help, even though it, I was really grossed out. I'm like, okay, I'm grossed out, but I can do this. And I, I helped them make the point. It, it, it makes for a good laugh afterwards. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have shared that story. I should have like, I, I, I should have picked a story I, at my detriment. No, <laughs> hey, hey, it's fun. Listen, it's certainly an entertaining story, but it also brings up a thing of having to overcome a challenge. Um, yeah, that's certainly true. And, and as well as it does bring up a, a good topic of working at height and, when we work at height, I think people instantly focus on, okay, the most severe risk is what if that person falls? Well, what if someone gets sick? Mm-hmm. What if someone has any number of human biological accidents? It happens. We're it not does, always yeah. in control. It, shit happens. And how do you deal with it? And how do you, you know, resolve the situation? So um, speaking of, of fall arrest, you had mentioned uh, that in your uh, 
progress and your journey so far within rigging that you did a lot of research on fall arrest and uh, certain related topics to the fall arrest industry. I want to ask some questions related to that in terms of first, how did the subject matter draw your attention? What was it about fall arrest and specifically um, rescue and suspension trauma? What, what about those things have uh, piqued your interest? And then to say, okay, in your research, what did you, what did you find? What did uh, your research develop? I love that question. Two reasons why that subject piqued my interest. One, I was taking, in my Sprat class, I was arguing with the instructor about rescue. And, you know, I, I like I said, I was cocky and stupid. And this, these people had every right to just not like me. And after that, I just, I realized I'm in a harness I'm using this lanyard, but I don't really know much about the equipment that I'm using. Simultaneously, I was going to Cal State Fullerton and I was in the honors program. And in order to maintain that status and continue receiving free printing and priority registration, I had to do a senior honors project. I had to write something and I had to present it. So I decided I would dive into um, fall protection. I did a quiz on SurveyMonkey and had a lot of people answer the questions. One of the questions was about post-rescue. When someone has fallen and they've been suspended in their harness, when you bring them to the ground, do you put them in a um, horizontal position or a city or a seated up position. And I thought everybody was just going to go with the seated up position because that's what I was taught. And one person who I believe was, is a, a um, RA technician in Canada said, put them in a horizontal position. And, uh, and now I'm like, whoa, buddy, you're wrong. What are you talking about, man? Come on. Anyway, I, you know, Politely, I asked him, why do you say that? And he shared with me some documents about suspension trauma, of, you know, some research papers. And I decided I wanted to learn more about the um, physiology of it, how to prevent it, and how to manage it if it does happen. So for my honors project, I basically, the written portion of it is, a reference guide for fall, uh, uh, fall protection and rescue. And I've read a lot of OSHA documents. I've read a lot of ANSI Z359 documents. I've been to an ANSI committee meeting. And, you know, I used to teach this stuff. So there was a lot that I was involved in that helped me write this document. For the presentation, I decided to focus solely on prolonged harness suspension. So, I, it's a lot. I, I, I don't even know how long we've been recording this, but if you want to check it out, go to YouTube and type prolonged harness suspension. 
or you can type my name, Siobhan Gee. Good luck spelling it. And, and, and uh, you should be able to find it. <laughs> I'll, I'll put a link to the video in uh, the show notes so that people can awesome. find that as well. Fun oh. fact, today, today that we're recording this is May 8th. Um, my grandmother let me know that three years ago was the day that I gave the presentation. Wow. Happy three-year anniversary. Exactly. <laughs> um, I think a few people have seen the video. I, I say a few. I, I know of a few people. I've watched it uh, several times, actually. Um, and I I appreciated the uh, the way in which you laid out your information. Um, you know, it's kind of ironic given the current uh, health crisis that we're all going through in terms of um, every day there's a new theory, there's a new bit of research, there's a new bit of science that says one thing and the next day something else comes out and, and if it doesn't blatantly contradict it, it, it modifies it. Um, and there seems to be that same uh, type of um, situation with suspension trauma. There is some debate about what the best practice is when you get a person down from the elevation. Now, most trainers, when we teach fall rescue, we talk about you should always, and, and again, nothing is black and white. There's no definitives, but a majority of the time you want to lower the person to the ground. And that's because if you raise them up, how do you then continue treatment of them? Now, you may work in a venue where there's an elevator that goes up to the catwalk level and you pull the person up to the catwalk and you can roll a, a stretcher right to them. Maybe that's a perfect situation, but more often than not, you're lowering the person down to the ground because that's where you can then proceed to give uh, treatment. The second thing that most trainers tell you is unless you have specific training, unless you've been an EMT or you are a paramedic, don't try to diagnose stuff. What you want to do is get them down and then get them into the hands of the professionals. Between those two things, between when they're in the care of the professionals and when you get them down, there's the question of what do we do with them? Do we remove the harness from them? Uh, do we lay them down flat? Do you put them in a chair? Do you have them stand up? How, you know, how do we do this? So what, you know, people certainly can watch the video for the full details, but what, what would the bullet points of your research paper end up being? So when you fall in your harness, there are a number of different things that can happen. And there's so many variables. It depends on if you're wearing your harness correctly. Did you hit something on the way down? Did you fall backwards? Did you fall forwards? You could sustain head injury, shoulder, hip injury, spinal injury. You could suffer from, you know, um, abrasions or anything. When people talk about suspension trauma, what they're referring to is orthostatic intolerance. If you see a wedding video and a groomsman passes out because their knees were locked, that's essentially what's happening with orthostatic intolerance. It's There are a series of things going on with your body that eventually lead to syncope, which is passing out. 
the problem with being in a harness is they harnesses are designed to keep your body upright within um, a 30 degree angle. And when why you pass out? Why is that? Um, it's for optimal spine alignment. And when, when you pass out, your body gets into a horizontal position so that your body isn't fighting gravity to replenish the blood volume throughout your system. When you're in a harness, you're upright, so your body has to continue to fight gravity. The reason that rope access technicians don't pass out after 15 minutes of work is they're continuously moving. And when you contract your calf muscles, it, it helps pump the blood back from the, you know, the lower half of your body back to the upper half. So if you have fallen and you are conscious and waiting to be rescued, um, move your legs, just stretch, contract your muscles, just keep, keep moving, breathe easy. You'll probably be shaken up. Um, like I've almost fallen and that's always scary. Yep. You get this rush of adrenaline. So, but if you do fall, um, keep your breathing, keep your breathing steady, pump your legs. If the, you know, and, and when you rescue that person, they're, they're going to be okay. You probably want to take them to urgent care to get checked out anyway. Even if they're conscious and say they're fine, there may be hidden injuries that you don't see. Absolutely. And it's better to be safe than sorry. If the person is unconscious during the rescue, you know, there it's things get more complicated and you're definitely going to want to call 911. You're definitely, when the EMTs are there, you're going to want them to take over as soon as that person gets down to the ground. Um, people say that rescue needs to take 15 minutes or less. And I feel like people say, if you don't rescue in 15 minutes, that person's going to die. And that's, that's extreme. That's not necessarily true. Um, the re if, if you're, if you're suffering from orthostatic intolerance and you can't replenish the blood volume throughout your body, what will eventually happen is you will, what will kill you is rhabdomyolysis, which is a breakdown of muscle tissue and toxins in the bloodstream. And, and then if that blood gets to your kidneys or your heart, you can suffer from organ failure. Usually it's kidney failure. And that's really how you'll die. And the, re and the way to, you know, to get healthy blood back in your system is to oxygenate it by going through your pulmonary system. So if, if, if you get someone to the ground and you don't lay them in a horizontal position and you don't do standard first aid on them, Essentially what you're doing, it's like someone getting punched in the face and then you punching in them in the face again. That's kind of what right. it's like. You are, you are risking, you're risking a theory versus um, something that they will certainly die from. And I, I go into detail in my video, 
But right. when you're in a rescue situation, I, 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 I am careful to say 15 minutes. I'm careful to put that hard number to a rescue because if you are, if adrenaline is rushing and you are trying to go as quickly as possible, that's when mistakes are going to happen. And you put the, your fellow rescuers at risk. You put other people at risk and you don't want to make a mistake in that situation. So I think what's more important is keeping calm and not rushing. If it takes, if the rescue takes 20 minutes or 25 minutes, that's okay. The person's not going to die in a hard and fast 15 minutes. We, we've, a lot of trainers have changed their uh, presentation of that information to say as fast as possible, because there are so many variables involved. Um, you know, I was, I was speaking previously about, you know, if, person fell off of the truss and they hit their head on the bumper for the line array and they're bleeding, that's going to speed up your time frame because now you're dealing with another situation versus if they fall and they're hanging there and they have what is known as a rescue strap or a rescue ladder, which can be a little deceiving if you use the term rescue ladder, but there are some uh, products out there where when your uh, lanyard deploys, it drops a roughly six foot long webbing a loop ladder, which allows you to stand in it. And yeah. you go from hanging in your harness to now, I will tell you, if you've ever gone out in the backyard and played on the rope hanging from the tree and you put your foot in it, after a few minutes, that rope starts pushing on the side of your foot. These things are not going to be comfortable, but it allows you to change your position as uh, you were saying exercise your body, move things, and at least you're not in the harness contracting the rest of your body. So that may add allowable time to the rescue. It um, does. It absolutely does. And there is um, research that proves exactly what you're describing. Right. So, um, so you get the person to the ground. Um, did you come up with a, uh, an opinion about the harness on versus off, or do you think that is something to leave to medical decisions? Um, if, if you end up calling 911 and EMTs are on the scene, I would just let them do their job. If, if EMTs are not on site, I would have someone who is a um, certified in first aid and CPR to go through their standard protocol. Right. When you go through first aid training, you are taught, you know, how to, how to check the head, neck, shoulders, torso, hips, spine, legs, um, appendages, and you're taught what questions to ask the person. You're taught how to look, you know, what signs and symptoms to look for to give you clues as to what they are suffering from. What if the person who fell is diabetic and went into diabetic shock and that's why they fell you know so if if you know that about the person then that's the protocol that you follow right so if the harness if the harness you know i mean i i they're not when you're not hanging dangling from it you know it's it's not meant to be completely restrictive it's not meant to Correct. constrict your arteries so if, you know, I, I don't, I don't really think that's 
as big of a problem, problem. if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. It does. Um, I, one of the things that just popped in my head that I wanted to share. Oh, sorry, real quick. Yes. If you have to do, if you have to do CPR on the person and the harness is in the way, maybe then you need to remove it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but, but like, you only really need to remove it so that you can perform CPR. It doesn't matter if you take just the shoulder straps off so that, you know, their sternum D ring isn't, you know, going to fracture their sternum or if you have to take the harness off completely, it depends on how the harness is built and how right. you're able to take it on and off. So, you know, I would say that's really, maybe one instance in which you do need to worry about whether the harness is on the person or not is if you need to administer CPR. CPR. Uh, so one of the things I wanted to share, and again, this is my opinion. Um, you had mentioned CPR and first aid training. I think it's really important for people to recognize that once you're trained, you should review your training periodically every six months maybe every three months. My my position on this has changed because of recent events um, personally and, and having to deal with uh, a situation where um, some of my friends in the industry had to perform first aid and um, a, a poignant comment by a friend of mine was that he was double guessing himself as he's about to perform uh, whatever services that needed to be done. He, he knew the situation was bad. He had been trained. He works for a company that takes safety very seriously. He had been trained. He felt comfortable, but he had very short instantaneous moments of doubt. But, it's interesting to me that when we've talked about the situation and that's one of the first things that he has brought up is his fear of doing the wrong thing in that environment because his training went to a certain extent and what happened was very much outside of that and he was questioning himself. And so that's you know, tying that back to our discussion is I think it's important for people to recognize that as well as doing the rescue training itself. It's not enough to say, here's what the plan is. And yes, we've been trained in it, air quotes, and we sign a piece of paper, but to physically do the training and to do that with um, the appropriate supervision, because you should not just throw someone in a harness and say, we're going to lower you down and hang you there for 15 minutes. Bill Sapsis has a story of he was doing a training and he got lifted, uh, you know, two feet off the ground in his harness to demonstrate the harness stretch. And he was up there for a short time period. I don't remember exactly how much the, the time period was, but it was relatively short, less than 15 minutes. And he was talking and he recognized that he was starting not to articulate yeah. very appropriately. <laughs> And thankfully, other people recognize that as, as well, and they put him down, and he, he almost passed out. And, and there is this very mm -hmm. simple thing, and it was funny, I was watching uh, an episode, a replay of House recently, and they talk about this, which is when people faint, that is your body doing a very natural thing, which is blood is not getting to your brain. How do we do this? How do we bypass the mechanical systems of the vascular system and, and everything else? How do we do this? 
we're going to put you on the ground and we're going to like gravity exactly. do its job. So, exactly. um, <laughs> that, so we were talking about long winded. <laughs> it's a very long winded for both of us to get to persons on the ground. They're laying down flat. Now, one of the reasons why the, what is called the Barker lounger position, which is slightly elevated shoulders off the ground and knees elevated was to prevent what is perceived as the rush of blood back towards the heart. Now, I, in, in my education of this, have been taught that it's not, and, and you allude to this in the video, it's not necessarily the bad blood or the overflow, but a very specific thing of, if blood has been pooling in your extremities, it promotes the potential of clotting. And that is the specific thing that you wanna be concerned about, not having a clot move to your lungs or to your brain, so mm -hmm. that you are regulating, to say, the uh, recirculation. Um, so, it, you know. In, I will in your say that reflow syndrome is the theory that when you lay someone flat on the ground, toxic blood from the lower extremities rushes to the heart and causes acute cardiac arrest. I will say that's called reflow syndrome. And that is something that has not been scientifically proven right. yet, or if ever, because like it's, we don't have enough information to know if that's a legitimate concern or not. Um, but I will also but admit that we, I have not looked into um, clot um, right. research. We, we are looking for volunteers. <laughs> yeah, we we'll take volunteers. If anybody wants to step forward and volunteer to see if this is a true theory or not. Yeah. It, and again, We're so bored in quarantine. We're going to yes. start doing some serious research right now. Exactly. <laughs> We're going to um, see how long it takes to pass out when you're hanging from your dorsal D-ring versus your sternum, sternum. versus your... Absolutely the other one central <laughs> yep and 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 there is a and and i'll take the opportunity to say this osha is advancing in its acknowledgement and acceptance of rope access as a tool with industry but the, if you've ever dealt with osha they do not change quickly they're very very slow to make change mm -hmm. right now in by OSHA law, there's only two places that you can attach fall arrest, and that is to your dorsal ring. And then two years ago, they added the sternum ring as long as the free fall distance is 24 inches or less. Um, and that really was to help with ladder access because they were updating uh, the fixed ladder fall arrest requirements. Cages won't be allowed in the States. You, currently, you can't install a fixed ladder with a cage anymore. And then in 2033, I believe, um, the cages will no longer be an acceptable fall protection. You have to have a ladder system. So the, easiest, call. the easiest way to do that is basically a rope grab, uh, a rope on the front of the ladder, a device that goes up and down the rope, and you attach that to yeah. your sturman position with a, you know, a carabiner. A lot of the systems, it's not a, a one foot lanyard. It's literally four inches. Um, so those are the only two approved places that you can attach. Rope access has a, a different procedure. They have redundancy. It is different. 
So you mm-hmm. have to figure out that process. And they're not, they also work in suspension. Um, right. And they're not only concerned about getting from one work platform to another. I, I think it's a, a valuable tool, but we have to, you know, when you're dealing with employer-employee relationship and you're dealing with having to meet OSHA's, require, OSHA's requirements, um, you have to do that balancing act of meeting the requirements as well as functionality. Um, mm-hmm. So, or is there anything else that you want to mention about your research on that before I take us in a different direction? Well, with rescue, I would like to say that don't only think about rope access and pick off rescue for your rescue plan. If you have a scissor lift, um, use it. If you have a, a ladder and a conscious person can just step on you know, an A-frame ladder and get themselves down, use that. When it comes to rescue, go for the simple solution. The more simplicity, the less room for error, and the less room for error, the safer and more efficient your rescue will be. So, Sometimes your rescue may call for uh, pick off rope access type rescue, but if you can go for a simpler solution, I, do that. So that brings up a, a, a situation that I'll describe. You have a roof system, you have towers. Usually the access is by climbing the tower and then going into the roof grid and rigging from there. Um, a lot of people will put their self-retractable device, which by the way, you're supposed to call them devices now instead of lanyards. They're trying to create some separation between those devices and the lanyards. Um, So you have your SRD, a yo-yo is up in the grid. Mm -hmm. For ergonomics, you might put that four or five feet away from the tower so that it's behind the person as they're climbing. It doesn't get in the way. When they get to the top, they can get into the grid easily. I don't like that because now I have eliminated my number one resource for rescue, which is a self-rescue. If that person is now five feet away from the tower hanging there, they can't reach the tower. If they just slipped and fell and they swing away, one, if, it's, if that SRD is too far from the tower, are they now going to swing back into the tower and hurt themselves, hit their head if they slipped and they're not able to recover quickly? But two, if you can figure out where to put that SRD so if they fall, they're almost in the same horizontal position they were in, they can climb the tower, go up a foot to release the SRD, and they can climb down, and that is the rescue. Um, So you got to think about that component stuff of, okay, I got the equipment. I'm going to stop the person from going splat. That was part one, but now we need to get them down. How do we do that? Sometimes simpler is, is the easiest way to go. So that's a really good point. So you mentioned you're working as a project manager right now. I ask this question never to infer that people are not happy in their position. What's your dream job in the industry? And I'm going to say, I would assume that's within rigging because that's what you're doing now. So, so humor me. What's your dream job as a rigger? Oh my God. I have no idea. I don't know anymore. I went through a serious identity crisis. Uh, I almost joined the military and it did not go as planned. So after two years of 
sending applications to OCS, getting rejected, sending another application, getting accepted, getting put on delayed entry, having a complication at MEPS that did not allow me to go to basic training, even though I had my backpack with my toothbrush ready to go. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think for all the good reasons to join the military, one of the reasons I wanted to do that was to have a clean slate. I shared my origin story with everyone today. I've never shared that version of it with anybody that I, you know, didn't personally know. You know, usually it's just my closest friends, but I just wanted a clean slate. I wanted to start over and not make the same mistakes. And I don't know, I'm not really a religious person, but maybe God was telling me something. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. So I, you know, I definitely have struggled with my own identity and I don't really know what my dream job is anymore. But I will tell you that I love my team. I learn something from each person all the time and I'm so grateful for them. Uh, maybe 20 years from now, I'll move into psychology or something else or teaching. I don't really know. Maybe I'll become like a second grade teacher, you know, and like when the kids start acting up, I'll, I'll be like, do you see this person? Do you know who I was in a, in a previous life? I, I, I lifted five of you at once. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> who knows? I, I, I have a, a friend and colleague who, uh, I mean, technically he's retired, but he's, he's gone through three phases of his life. He was a rocket scientist. He then became a patent attorney. And then when he retired, he started doing community theater. And he's now a rigger and he works in, in, in the market I'm in. And, uh, you know, he does it for fun. It's, it's something he enjoys doing. So it's okay to, to, to change. Again, it's okay to evolve. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. no matter what, whatever I'm doing with my work, I want to be able to help people. And, um, I, because of my own story, I want to help people that are suffering in, you know, with abuse guys and gals. And I also really like kids. Maybe that comes from the years that I, was a karate instructor and with all those kids that I've worked with they're just so great they're so innocent and honest and creative and funny and you know if I could help kids see their potential and achieve things in their own life that would make me happy too so I don't know what that looks like exactly but it's something like that it I think that's amazing um I had a thought, it came in, and it left just as quickly. And this break is brought to you by... Ah, see, you mentioned break. <laughs> that triggered it. Uh, absolutely. Um, you had mentioned uh, people facing challenges. I think it's important to know that Behind the Scenes, which is a, a charitable organization dedicated to supporting uh, technicians in the live event world has in the last few uh, months to year been working diligently on a support structure for mental health issues. And the thing that they have rolled out in the last few weeks has been a, uh, a resource for people to talk uh, with others 
uh, not necessarily a therapist, although they are working on resources for therapists who have knowledge of the entertainment industry to be a resource that uh, I urge that if there's anyone listening who's going through a difficult time, regardless of what the cause of that is, maybe COVID is driving you nuts and, and you're just like, man, I got a rig and I can't, and I'm having a hard time dealing with that. Or you're in a unhealthy relationship or you're having addiction issues, whatever it is, there are resources for you to get help. Visit behind the scenes. I'll put the link in the show notes. And don't be afraid to ask. I think one of the important things to take away from today's episode so far is that um, you will get through it. You know, whatever the challenge is, you will get to the other side. Um, Siobhan is a example of that and not giving up on themselves. Um, so certainly keep that in mind and, and, you know, Hey, if you listen to this and you're just really kind of bumming out, shoot me a message on Facebook, see if I'm around. I I'll talk to anybody. Um, so, um, what's one of your biggest fears as a rigger? And hmm. don't, you know don't, what? I, don't say dropping I, something. No, it's, it's not, it's not dropping something. I, oh man, I, human error is a horrible thing sometimes. And sometimes that can be deadly and catastrophic. And my biggest fear as a rigger is saying okay to something when I shouldn't say okay to it, approving something that I should not approve and having someone seriously injured or killed on the job. That's my biggest fear. So I think that's why I'm very, very passionate about education and very passionate about learning from my, my peers because that, that's gotta be my biggest fear. I, I know of people who have been on job sites that, that, you know, where, where, where some, yeah, just where someone was either hurt or, or died. Um, I don't, I don't want that to happen to me or my crews. That's my biggest fear. What, um, are there any widgets, any tools, any devices, any pieces of equipment that have made you enamored with them recently? Anything you're like, oh, that's so cool. I like my ID. It's a lot of fun. Repelling is just great. Although IDs are for industrial use. And when you are recreationally repelling, you use other devices such as I can only remember the piranha, and I think that's manufactured by um, Petzl. I went canyoneering in Utah last year, and it was so fun. Um, I would, I love it. So I don't know. I think I guess the ID you can do a lot with it, and you can repel from it, and you can you can even ascend with it. It's just fun. <laughs> Excellent. I'll throw up a link on that one as well. Um, all right. Before the last question, I would ask if there's anything else you want to talk about, any other uh, stories you want to tell, any questions you have for me, 
And no is an okay answer. Well, I was hoping you would ask me about my love life because I really love that story of how my boyfriend and I met. All right. So <laughs> everyone pretend if we're going to rewind and that you didn't hear the last 30 seconds. So, hey, you have this very cute story of how you met your boyfriend um, because it's related to a topic we spent some time talking about in terms of fall arrest. So why don't you tell that story? Oh my gosh, Ethan, you know, I am so glad you asked. I, when I was a fall protection and rescue trainer, I convinced my supervisor to send myself and another coworker to an ANSI committee meeting. And we, I, I went to the subcommittee meeting for self-retracting devices. I saw a really cute guy and said, is anybody sitting there? And he goes, nope, you are. Um, so I'm taking notes as they're talking about SRDs and they were specifically talking about leading edge SRDs. And this guy leans over and goes, are you new here? I said, yes. How can you tell? He goes, because you're taking a lot of notes. I'm like, wow, okay, <laughs> thanks. Long story short, um, we exchanged information and we were basically pen pals for two years before deciding to get into a serious relationship. And we usually like send pictures of dogs to each other or talk about our family, families and vacations. Um, he is he works for a fall distribution company. So he's on the business end of fall protection. And a lot of their client, clients come from the tower industry. Right. So we can, so it's really cool because I come from the end user aspect of it and we can both talk about fall protection, but our conversations are still very fresh and interesting because he talks about the business aspect of it and I'll talk about the application aspect of it. He's just wonderful too. Hi, Dan. <laughs> he probably hates me right now. Ah, say love Um <laughs> I think uh, you it, can find love even in standards. <laughs> absolutely. It was a match made in ANSI heaven. <laughs> All right. So I just thought of another question that I'll ask before the last question, which is um, in episode one, talking with Yana, we talked about some of the challenges specific to female riggers and fall arrest being harness size. Um, have you found any harnesses, manufacturers that you like? What kind of harness do you own? What has worked for you? And the reason I'm asking that specifically is not to make a, a point of, oh, well, there's only a few women in the industry with harnesses, so let's find out what they're all wearing so we have that information for the next person. But more so, you've done a lot of research on fall arrest. You are a trainer. You obviously have a relationship with someone who involved as a distributor, um, so your resources are, are, are well stocked. What are you wearing? Why are you wearing it? What advice would you have to other people who are on the smaller range of the harness limitations? Ooh, I feel like I'm on the red carpet. Who are you wearing? Yes. So I own a Yates Voyager. 
my next harness, I would like to buy a Petzl Aval. Maybe I'll change my mind if I go harness shopping. I uh, may try some different models, but uh, so far the, the Petzl Aval is my favorite right now. Um, I think when we talk about um, body, when we talk about differences in, um, I guess, physicality and, and harness fittings, I think it's worth having these conversations about the differences between different body types and not just to, it's, we are pretty, we're getting better at acknowledging the differences. I think we need to move into being more specific. So, um, this is slightly inappropriate, but I have smaller, I have a smaller chest and you know, I don't really have a, there's not really a preference between a V style and an H style harness for me. Although I will only use a V style because those tend to be for rope access situations and I use my sternum D ring. So that's why, but I don't have the experience of having a larger chest and knowing if the um, straps should be, uh, you know, manufactured differently or designed differently, right. you know, and I, I would love to have that conversation with fellow female riggers who have experience in that. And I'd love to hear their perspective. Um, yeah. And you know what else? when you are when you weigh less you have less body mass when you fall from a height you're going to feel more g-force because all that energy has to go somewhere so it's going to go into your body and you're going to experience a greater g-force if you have a big a more body mass you're going to experience less g-force because the energy is going to be distributed through your fall protection and more mass in your body so the force you feel is gonna be less. That's why when manufacturers say a harness user should have, um, has to be a minimum of 130 pounds, it's because they are considering the maximum arrest force that that user is going to experience. So if you are bordering 130 pounds or less, you are going to experience higher G-forces and you'll get up to 12 or even 15 G's, which, um, which the military says is like the threshold for an athletic young man to um, success, you know, to, to be able to experience without um, injury. There's, there's also, especially with um, shock packs on lanyards, uh, if you don't weigh enough, you don't generate enough force it is not going to deploy properly. So it's like it doesn't exist. And so now your shock load factor is going to go high. So you've actually compounded the issue twice. One, you're feeling mm -hmm. more G-forces. Two, you've actually increased the amount of G-forces to start with. So it's just yeah. a bad situation. Yeah. So if, you're, if you have less body mass, I would, I would invite you to read Survivable Impact Forces and consider maximum arrest force and G-force when you're picking out your fall protection gear. Uh, another device that I'm pretty enamored with are the personal SRDs, the ones that um, attach to your harness, because those will stop you from falling within two inches. Yep. 
Um, if you fall straight down, that's not considering yes, swing fall. Absolutely. Um, the, that technology has gotten a lot better where their weight is smaller. Um, there are some manufacturers that make dual SRDs that are almost like a back plate that attach to your harness so that it's a little more comfortable. The concession is, especially if you're working outside, um, that's more surface area, so you might get a little warmer, but... Um, stay as, hydrated. <laughs> stay hydrated, exactly. So... All right. Well, we've been going for a while here. We've been going strong. I think we've covered a lot of topics. I have one question left. What is your best or worst rigor joke? I will let the audience decide what category they want to put this in. What did the frog say to the rigor? I, I don't know. What did the frog say to the rigor? He said, you fucking bitch, I told you to put the point two inches downstage. I'm just kidding. He said, rig it, rig it. Nice. I like my, it. Uh, my boyfriend um, added that first part with all the cursing. I was like, hey, that's some good misdirection. Whatever we, whatever we can do to change the title on iTunes from explicit no to yes, we should do. Good. All right. <laughs> I seriously appreciate you having me. This has been therapeutic for me and I hope people take away a lot from this. I'm so excited. Thank wow. you so much for your, this. Your standards are so much higher. I just hope people listen. <laughs> no, thank you. I, I, I appreciate your input. I, um, you know, you and I met online after you had done your presentation. I watched the video. Um, uh, we reached out to each other to communicate and talk about follow-up stuff. And then uh, serendipitously, um, we started working together more closely because of United Station Rigging. You're welcome, John Sharp, for the other plug. So no, I appreciate you being on, on, on the podcast. I think your story is something that a lot of people, regardless of gender, can learn something from. Um, and yeah, so thank you. And I will say thank you to everyone, hopefully, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this. We're going to keep moving forward with some other topics and some different people. So until next time, keep the pin in the shackle. Son, you know your father was a rigger. A rigger was he. The shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be.